Good evening and greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is indeed a blessing and a privilege to be together this evening. I regret it was not possible for me to be here last night. I was in Missouri on a Christian Light education assignment, and so it was not possible for me to be here. I invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Brother Dennis called me and asked if I would share devotional this evening. And I do not want to infringe on Brother Ray's assignment this evening. <clears throat> I've entitled it, or my thoughts, The Grace of God for Ministry. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, actually in verse 11, it's the end of a sentence where the Apostle Paul talks about the purpose of the law, the purpose of, of um, the, the end of the commandment, it says, the way he starts off, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, and I, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes and he charges Timothy, his disciple, so to speak, with the responsibilities that he is to have. I'd like to just lift out some of the things that God's grace does. He says, first of all, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who enabled me. God's grace enables us. It's God's grace that gives us the power, that gives us the, the, what, the, what we need to do the will of God. I'm so thankful that, yes, it, it needs a surrendered will, but it's the grace of God that's, that's at work. It says, the grace of God with enabled me, he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. It is a grace of God that appoints. And wherever God's, wherever God's grace gives appointment, he also gives a grace to carry through with appointment. And we sense here in Paul as he's speaking that he looks back at how God's grace worked in his life 
up to this point. It says, God's grace gave me mercy. It did not give me what I deserved. I obtained mercy. And all of us who have gone through this experience, Brother Dwight and Sister Darla are going through, we look back and it is only God's grace. And we look where we are presently and it's only God's grace. We look ahead. It's only God's grace. But as we look back, Paul looks back and he says, it's the grace of God that enabled me. It's the grace of God that gave me mercy. He says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love. Not just a little measure of God's grace. When God gives grace, there's lots. There's much of it. And God gives grace to us for whatever calling, for whatever ministry, for whatever thing that he asks of us to do, whatever that may be. And he gives plenty of grace to cover, to carry us through. It would be a terrible assignment any assignment that we would need to do with, with divine enablement, but we had to do it on our own. It would not work. God gives grace. And he continues to talk about this grace in verse 15. He says, and I, Paul says, I look back and it's just by grace that I am what I am. I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I and I know I look back and I say that. God, you can't use me. But it's grace. And how God has given grace in the past. Grace regarding one's past. And Paul realizes the greatness of sin, but also the greatness of grace. And then he says... God has given grace so that I can be somewhat of a spectacle, an example of God's grace working. I'm reminded of another verse when Paul had that thorn in his flesh and he prayed and finally the Lord just gave him that direction and said, uh, my grace is sufficient. Just rely on, on the grace that you're going to get. It's there. God's strength is made perfect in when we sense our weakness. And then in verse 17, as I believe as the Apostle Paul just, just reflects on, on all this, there's a doxology of praise now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. This only wise God be honor and glory forever. I'm so thankful that God's grace is available. 
I'm so thankful that God's grace is real. It's not just an idea. I believe all of us have sensed it in our lives as we've gone through experiences. And I believe strongly that the Lord, we have sensed it these past days in our midst here. We have. And I trust Brother Dwight and Sister Darling are experiencing it too. And so we praise God for grace. Let us pray. Our Father, this evening we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you are a God who has called each one of us by name to yourself, that we could walk with you, that we could have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that grace. Not one of us had, had any merit to deserve such a calling. And Father, we just thank you for that exceeding grace that was abundantly, is abundantly available. And Father, we thank you this evening that when you call us further as, as children of God to work in your kingdom in any way in which you call us, for any task you call us, you give us enabling grace. You do not ask us to do something and then expect us to find our own resources. But you give us all that we need to complete the task of being laborers together with you. We're so grateful for that. We thank you, Father, for the grace that we have sensed each in our own lives. We thank you for the grace we sense in our in our present in, in our body here corporately, your body here. We ask that you would receive much glory and praise as we continue to meditate on your word. As Brother Ray opens the scriptures to us, we pray that your spirit would speak mightily to us. We pray that your grace would be especially abundant with the Burkholder family. Continue to just bless them with your presence. We thank you for the grace that is available through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Good evening and bring you greetings in the name of Jesus. It's good to be here, and it's been a blessing to see God working in, and among you as a congregation. Ordinations always bring a sense of awe when you consider God, who is sovereign and knows the process and the results from beginning to end, and yet he delegates the process and the doing of it to us as people and it's just been a blessing to see how he's worked in your lives as a congregation and making his sovereignty known to us and that gives us confidence in going forward knowing that it is his work and his will to 
Brother Dwight and Sister Darla, I wish you God's grace and his peace. Benediction of Aaron, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That is my prayer for you and for you as a congregation that you would finally sense the peace of the Lord as you go forward. And thank you, Brother Pete, for the reminder of God's grace, his enabling grace. Certainly it is only by the grace of God that we can go forward and do his work. Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. He gives grace on on top of grace. Subject this evening, the need and responsibility of a minister and his wife. And I've chosen to use the example of the Apostle Peter's ministry to draw some points and instruction for us and considering especially the responsibility of a minister I think in a lot of ways Peter's example and his ministry is one that we can relate to because it seems so human that um, we see him stumbling and falling and we see him being used powerfully in the Lord's work but it certainly is a colorful picture in the, of the life of a minister, his example. We see him first when Jesus called him, he was fishing. And Jesus called him, follow me, and he was willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. It says they were casting the net, so they were in the process. It wasn't like it was a convenient time to stop and follow, but he left everything and was willing to go. He was bold and impetuous. He demonstrated instant in season and out of season. And his personality and nature was such that he, you know, any lull or in the conversation, he felt compelled to, it should be filled with words, and if nobody else is going to do it, he would take it upon himself to, to do that. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's in Mark, it says, he wist not what to say, but he knew something should be said. And so he said that, now let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And while he yet spake, there came a voice from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And he had to learn the lesson of quietness and sometimes sitting back and waiting on the Lord and allowing him to speak. He walked on water, but he needed to be saved from drowning because he took his eyes off on Jesus. And still, we admire the faith and the boldness to go forward and step out of the boat. It's much, I would much sooner need to be saved from stepping out in faith and doing things that maybe end in failure from a human perspective and yet have the confidence of, of knowing 
that as we look to Jesus, he will give us the grace. We will be able to do as Peter did and go beyond what we can on our own strength. He was willing to cast the net to the other side of the boat when there was no logical reason to do so other than the fact that Jesus had said to do it. It made no sense at all. He had fished all night and yet he did it. Before Jesus' death, he was willing to stand alone. Though all shall be offended, yet will not I. And yet within 12 hours, he was denying the Lord Jesus, cursed and swore that he didn't know him. After Jesus' resurrection, after Pentecost, he preached the first sermon in the church on the day of Pentecost powerful example of the Spirit of God and 3,000 souls being brought to the Lord. He was the one who first went to the Gentiles with the gospel in Cornelius' house. But later on the very issue of Jew and Gentile, Paul had to withstand him to the face for, depending on who was in the audience, going one way or the other. So that is just an overview of the minister Peter's character. He had the privilege of knowing ahead of time how he was going to die. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdedest thyself, and walketest whither thou wouldest not. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Turn with me to Matthew 16 and verses 13 through 20. Jesus here introduces them to the church, gives them the need of a minister. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom do you say, whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. And we kind of lose that play on words in the English, but thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. And he seems to be making a distinction between Peter, the man of flesh, a little piece of a stone, and the confession that he had just made about the Lord Jesus, this big mass of rock, the foundation on which the church would be built. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. It's the sense that I get from this passage is that Jesus is preparing the disciples for the time when he would leave the world 
when he was no longer there to do his work, the work of the church. And he was telling them in his absence that he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to them. He would give the work of the church into the hands of men who would fail and or had the potential of failing and yet he chose to entrust them with the care, his work in the world while he was gone. I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And keys speak of access, of authority. Those who have the keys have the access to the building, to the treasures inside. Our understanding might differ on what the binding and loosing is, but clearly... Jesus is speaking of leadership and the need for ministry of men who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the rock on which the the church is built, to care and do the work of the church in the absence of Jesus. Jesus said, I will build the church. That's his work. That's the work of Jesus. He continues to build his church, but then he entrusts the care to us today to people who have committed their lives to the Lord Jesus and the work of the church. We wonder why Jesus was willing to give the keys to someone he knew was made of flesh and prone to failure. In fact, Peter, just in the next verses, Jesus tells them about his his, uh, work needing to give his life, and Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Second Corinthians 4, thinking of the question, why... Jesus would entrust the care of the church to men of flesh. Paul gives us some insights into his ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God specifically entrusted the care of the church to men so that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us, so that he would receive the glory and not man. So that 
passage outlines both the need and the first responsibility of a minister, the need of someone to care for the work of the Lord Jesus in the world in his absence. And the first responsibility is to recognize Jesus as the head of the church and how the minister fits in the whole scheme of things. It's not my church, but it is about the Lord Jesus and his work and his church. The recognition that we are simply vessels of clay, and it's the treasures, the keys, the kingdom of heaven, the treasures within that we care for and administer. Considering the vessels of clay, perhaps the second responsibility of a minister is to guard his own life. And I grew up, and it's not been so long ago, that I would have thought that anybody by the time he's a grandfather and 55 and a minister, that surely at some point you get beyond the temptations that are so common to us. Rather than being insulated, I believe being in leadership, we're, we become targets for Satan's temptations and advancements. I, um, I grew up with a grandfather who I respected highly, probably the person in my life that influenced me more than anyone else. So it was my grandfather, and he was old, and he was a minister, and I was very way beyond what I should have been when I realized that he was flesh and bones and saw sides of him that weren't, weren't perfect. Recently, my daughter-in-law was looking at the moon with her two-and-a-half-year-old twins, and as they were looking, she asked them, So, who made the moon? And without hesitation, the answer was, Pop. Pop would be me. I hope they're not too disappointed when they realize that I'm human. And, um, but we somehow think that ministry and age and position insulates us from, from uh, temptation, from Satan's advancements. But truly... It is critical that we in ministry guard our own lives. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Take heed unto yourself. Luke 22 and verse 31. an insight into the ministry of Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and into death. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. 
and that both emphasizes the need to guard our own lives and the work of the Lord Jesus and his sustaining grace. I have prayed for thee that your faith fail not. Ministry brings with it temptations to pride, temptations to discouragement, impatience, doing things for the wrong reason. We think we're above our people or we're above correction or we're too good to do some things, let somebody else do that. Guard your own life is one of the responsibilities of a minister. Surely the sifting that uh, Jesus told Peter about, Satan hath desired to have you, that was before Pentecost. Surely after Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, things would change. But Galatians 2, 11 and 12 We have the account where Peter needed to be corrected. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew himself. He withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried with the, away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? The realization that regardless of our place and our position and our age, that we're always need to be open to correction and... Um, redirection, even when it comes from others in the church and from the brotherhood. We know or assume that Paul or Peter accepted this. He says of Paul in his letter, of, of the Apostle Paul, an account that the long-suffering our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Our beloved brother Paul... I believe that Peter took the correction, he went forward, and he was still able to claim the Apostle Paul as his brother, and not just his brother, but a beloved brother. Guard your own life. Take heed unto yourself and to the ministry. Take heed unto yourself and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you an overseer. The third responsibility of a minister is to take care of his own family. Mark 1 and verse 29. 
Forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lift her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. It seems like Peter cared for his family. His wife's mother lay sick, and he cared enough to bring Jesus to the house and um, present her to Jesus for healing. And that happened. The qualification of a minister is one that ruleth well his own house. The responsibility of the minister is to continue to rule well his own house. Fourth and fifth responsibilities I'd like to look at, John 21. And verse 15, John 21, 15. When they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And the word he uses for feed here is the Greek bosco, which is a word that simply means give them food. Bosco, my lambs, feed them. Make sure that they get fed. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And the feed here is a different word, poimeno, which is a shepherding term and would include feeding, but also the other things that a shepherd does for his sheep, the care of the sick, making sure that they have shelter and protection, keeping the fences up. A shepherding term. The same term that Jesus used when he said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good poimane. A shepherd. And to be a shepherd and do the work of a shepherd is a poimeno. And so the second time he says, feed, do the work of a shepherd with my sheep. Verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. And again, he goes back to the Bosco, give them food to eat. The responsibility of a minister that Jesus was giving to Peter here was to feed, preach the word and to do the work of a shepherd. He gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The word pastor there is that of a shepherd, the poimane. So the minister's responsibility to feed and to shepherd, that is the primary work. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. It's tempting to preach books, to preach opinions, preach other people's sermons, preach commentaries, 
But the primary responsibility of the minister is to preach the word. I think it was Francis of Assisi that said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. We preach the foolishness of the cross. We preach Jesus Christ. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. I think we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 17, uh, 1 and verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that men, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath he chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye. In Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The foolishness of the cross, but the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We preach Christ, we preach him crucified. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence, that, but that he should receive all the power and the glory. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. So preach the word and do the responsibility of a shepherd, tend to the needs that aren't necessarily directly the public ministry of preaching the word. Shepherd takes his sheep to the green pastures. Beside the still waters, he restoreth my soul. Lead in paths of righteousness. Walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death. Anoint their heads with oil, the overflowing cup. Peter was an example of one who both preached and shepherded. If you page through the book of Acts, you see him preaching sermons, Acts chapter 2. You see him in houses, Cornelius' house, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. 
you see him in Dorcas house being called there because he was in the area coming in and, and meeting the need there. You see him confronting Ananias and Sapphira, both preaching and doing the work of the shepherd. Sixth and seventh responsibilities, I'd like to turn to 1 Peter 5. And verses 1 through 11. The elders which are among you, I exhort him also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. He uses the same word that Jesus used in, in uh, John 21. Feed the flock, do the shepherding of the flock, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth more grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called you into his glory, eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He emphasizes in taking the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, neither as being lords, but being examples to the flock. And I would see that as another responsibility of the minister is, by his life, to be an example of the flock. In word, in uh, First Timothy, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The minister leads his, the way in, in uh, his conversation, his way of life. Be an example to the flock. We also get the sense in First Peter 5 that Peter is in the process of passing on the responsibilities to the next generation. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. And so the last responsibility that I'd like to take from Peter's example is that of recognizing our own mortality and making room for our own succession. It is something that we all need to deal with, we don't like to think about it, but the passing on of the charge to the next generation, and so that is the part of the work of the ordination. I'm not going to say a lot about the need of a minister's wife. Um, Peter, I'd like to turn to First Peter 3, though, 
in closing. First Peter three and verse one, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that he that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. From this passage, we see the responsibility of a wife in general, and I would say of a minister's wife, of one of supporting respect, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. A minister, I suppose, more than laity, need the confirmation and the respect, and I guess it is the one thing. I have both been married and had the support of a wife in ministry and been without, and it is the probably the thing that I miss the most is the confirmation and the when things are falling apart and nothing is going well, just to step back and say, it's not about you, it's about the Lord, and the little boosts of confidence. So be there and support your husband, respect his ministry, respect him as a person, Peter 2, in uh, relating to, he says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. And I like the way he brings it in, being heirs together of this precious gift, the grace of life. And that to me is the summary of the relationship of the place of a wife and the minister of her husband sharing together in the gift of life, the grace of life. And maybe that in conclusion is a final intangible responsibility. Never lose the awe and the wonder of being a part of a partaker of this precious grace of God that we heard about in the opening. The heirs together of the grace of life, part of something that is way beyond ourselves and about us, but it is the grace of God. Preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Romans Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given unto him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? 
For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory, both now and forever. Heirs together of the precious grace of life. May the Lord bless you and keep you as a congregation. And Brother Dwight and Sister Darla especially, may you sense his presence in a very real way.